We're in chapter 15. And uh, if you did not get a study sheet when you came in, why don't you lift your hand right now? One of our ushers will get one of those for you. For you folks who are guests, again, we want to welcome you. Thank you for coming. We realize you can go anywhere you want to, and you didn't have to go anywhere at all this morning. And the fact that you came here is a, is a blessing to us. And uh, this study sheet that they're handing to you will, uh, will be of great benefit as we work our way through the message but we're in, in Revelation chapter 15, and just to be quite honest with you, we have embarked into a, a subject that modern man is very much against. And the reason the modern man is so much against it is it is so much against modern man. What we're dealing with here is, is the wrath of God. And again, it's a, it's a subject that... Uh, People don't like to, to talk about today, and yet, as we've made our way through the book of Revelation, it is something that we are most definitely going to have to deal with. Now, just a second ago, as we were working our way through the worship, Frank was, what he did is he took about 30 seconds to really give you the plan of the Bible. It, really, the message of the Bible was spelled out for us. And you know what? Some of us really didn't grab it, and so let me just kind of, okay? Now, now listen real carefully. Now, I know a lot of you know this. A lot of you, listen, this is why God wanted you to come here today, so you can get this little 30-second vignette, okay? Now, don't be getting up after the 30 seconds is over. I got what I was supposed to get, and I'm out of But, but, but now, now, listen to this. God created man, and the reason that he created him is so that he could have a love relationship with him. God, when he made that man, he, the Bible says he created him in his image. And because he gave him his image, he has a very specific title that God gives him. A son or a daughter of God. God, when he created us, not only created us in his image, but he also gave us his likeness. And because he gave us his likeness, we have a, a very tremendous privilege. We have the privilege of having a relationship with God, that's because God made us like Him. He gave us a body and a soul that houses a spirit, and inside that spirit, we fellowship with God. And I'm telling you, you go back into the beginning of the Bible in the Garden of Eden, and it was the most incredible thing in the world to behold that. But what happened is man chose the way of sin. He chose to go in the exact opposite direction of God. And when he did that, check it out, he lost the image of God and was no longer a son of God. And when he did that, he lost the privilege of that relationship with God because he was no longer in God's likeness. He had a body, he had a soul that would live forever, but that spirit inside of him died, and that's the part of us that fellowships with God. And so man is left in this incredible dilemma. He can't do nothing about that situation. I mean, there is nothing that he can do to cause that dead spirit to come to life. There's nothing that he can do to restore that image. Now he is in Adam's fallen image. And there's nothing he can do to bring it back. There's nothing that he can do to bring himself into that relationship with God again. And so what God did is God said, since there ain't nothing that they can do, 
I'm going to step into human history and I'm going to invade that planet and I'm going to do for them what they can't do for themselves. I'm going to die to take the penalty of their sin so that they can have restored to them the likeness of God and now we're complete in Him. We can have restored to us our fellowship with God and now once again we have the title Son or Daughter of God. Now, that's something that this church, you could have said all of that probably a little faster than I could. There's others of you, again, that the reason God wanted to bring, to bring you to this room this morning is so that you could get that message. So that message could become loud and clear to you. And as we go through the message today, I do want to ask you to contemplate whether or not that relationship with God that he died to give you is something that you want to have with the holy creator God of the universe. But I'm going through all of that because I want to ask you a, a question. I do want to get us moving in a direction this morning as we are finally somewhere along the way this morning going to get to Revelation 15 to continue to talk about God's wrath. But I've got a question for you. I just told you what God's plan was. His plan, according to Luke 19.10, is to seek and to save that which was what? That was lost. We lost his image. We lost his likeness. We lost fellowship with him. And he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Now the question is this. What motivates God to do what he does? I think that's on your study sheet. Have you ever stopped to consider that? What is it that motivates God to do what he does. Now, 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 now listen, now that may seem like a you know, nice little uh, introductory question to, to get the audience to be pulled into the thinking of the speaker. You know, no, whoa, 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 no. That ain't why I'm doing that. I, I'm asking you that question because the answer to that really unfolds for us the, the key to this Christian life thing. Now, when we approach this thing of the what motivates God, we can approach it in two different ways, okay? We can make this thing unbelievably hard, okay? And you see, that's what, that's what the theologians have done. Now, this set of books is something that I brought down from, from my office, and what this series of books does is it really answers the question that I pose to you. Okay? Now, do we want to do it the hard way? And, you know, here's the hard way. We can pop open one of these books and begin to, to do it the way that the theologians do. You know, as we stimulate our conscious mind by embarking into the vast expanses of God's internal impulses, I feel a delicacy in articulating lest I should deviate from the nebular conception of the truth. You know, we can, we can go that way, or you know what, we can make it so simple that you can be dumber than a hoe handle to get it. <laughs> All right, saints, I'm going to ask you this morning, do you want it the hoe handle approach, or do you want it the theologian approach? Okay, we're all dumber than a hoe handle. Okay, we, we can at least agree to that much, and, and, and I'm just telling you. The thing that is so cool about God to me is he's, he's a champion for guys that are dumber than a hoe handle like me. Amen. In fact, that's what he says in Mark chapter 12, man. 
It, what it says is the, the common people heard him gladly. And so you know what he had to do for those common folks? He had to just break that down into simplicity. Now, now you, you know what? I, I know what's going to happen. Some, somebody that has been blessed by this series of books is going to come up to me afterwards and say, you know, there is a place for that. And you know what? I, I'll, I, I'll give you that. Okay? I'm just trying to tell you. The, the Bible talks about leaving the simplicity that is in Christ. And boy, I'm telling you, the devil is a master at making God's Word and God seem extremely intricate and extremely hard and almost to the point to where you just want to check out. When God has taken this thing, and oh my goodness, He has made it so incredibly, incredibly simple. Now, here's what it is. Okay, here's what motivates God to do what He does. He's motivated by his own nature. He's motivated by his own nature. In, in other words, God does what he does because he is what? Who he is. And, and you see, that, that's why we work so hard around here not to put legalistic trips on people. Because you see, you understand what legalism is? It's doing something in order to become something and you see that's what motivates a lot of Christians to do what they do now we just talked about what motivates God you know what motivates a lot of Christians to do what they do it's so that they can become something I'm gonna do this this and this and I'm not gonna do this this and this so that I can be spiritual and I'm not gonna do this this and this and and and, and I'm gonna do this this and this because I want God to accept me and I, I don't know if you've picked up on it or not, but what we're constantly trying to communicate to you in this room is that what you are is a thousand times more important than what you do. Because the truth is, folks, you know what? You may do all kinds of spiritual-looking stuff. Now listen... You may do all kinds of spiritual-looking stuff. In fact, you may do things that genuinely spiritual people do, and yet you may not be spiritual. Because, you see, I can do what I do because of a very selfish, self-seeking, self-promoting motivation. I can do what I do to be put in the spotlight in the Christian life. And you know what? There's all kind of people who pat you all over your back if you'll just do all of these things. But it may have absolutely no bearing whatsoever on you being spiritual. In fact, doing all those things may make you extremely carnal. And so let me just give you a real simple rule of thumb to live by. Focus on being what God wants you to be. And you'll do what God wants you to do. You got that? Focus on being what God wants you to be, and you'll do what God wants you to do. You say, well, that, that sounds real good. Well, where'd you get that? You know where I got that? Listen. From God. Why does God seek and save that which is lost? 
He does it because of who he is. He does it because of his nature. You say, well, explain that. Well, what these volumes of, of books do here is they really, they explain the nature of God. And again, we can go that hard route and we can take the next 15 years of our life and we can work our th way through all of that incredible stuff that's in there and have our dictionary next to us so that we can figure out what all that stuff is. Or we can take that whole handle approach and what God does for us is he gives us that whole handle approach in the book of First John. And I want to ask you to turn over there if you would. The book of First John. And oh my goodness, I love what John does in this book. What he does is he capsulizes the nature of God. Listen to this now. He capsulizes the nature of God into two simple little three-word phrases. In fact, they're even alliterated for us in our English Bible. And for all of us hoe-handle people, alliteration means they all start with the same letter. Okay? Okay, so, so I mean, here it is. Here's all this incredible theology stated in two simple little phrases okay here it is God is light and God is what love H have you ever seen the the posters that are kind of in vogue right now uh, you know, th th there's a thousand different variations on it but they, they, they say something like all I ever needed to know about whatever I learned at have you, got, you guys know what I'm talking about? All I ever needed to know about whatever I learned from whoever. And you know what we could say? All I ever needed to, to learn about God and the Bible, I learned in the two simple phrases, God is light and God is love. And let me show you how the book of 1 John does this, this for us. Okay, look, look at 1 John. You should be there by now. I'll try to get there. First John chapter 1. And look with me at verse 5. John says, This then is the message which we have heard of him. And him is the Lord Jesus Christ. And now we declare it unto you that God is light and in him is how much darkness? No Darkness. Now, just in case there might be some group of people that would come along in the last days that would get to the place to where truth was so relative that there was parts of no that they didn't understand. He didn't just say, in him is no darkness, but, look at it, in him is no darkness, what? At all. Okay, so now when we're talking about God being light in terms of his character or in terms of his nature, it has to do with his holiness. And what John is saying here is God is absolute holiness. And in him is absolutely no unholiness, no evil, nothing impure whatsoever. James chapter 1 and verse 17 says, Every good and every perfect gift cometh down from above and cometh down from the Father of what? Lights. And listen to the rest of it with whom is no variableness, neither shadow 
of turning. In other words, God is absolute holiness and he cannot vary from that, not even to the slightest degree. There couldn't be even a shadow brought into the Father of lights because his nature is that he is light. He is holy. Again, that's why he can't vary from that. It's because that's who he is. Psalm 104 in verse 2 says, check this out now, that God clothed himself with light as with a garment. He's clothed with light. And that's why in Matthew chapter 17 in verse 2 at the transfiguration, you know what happened there? Peter, James, and John go up and the, the, the figure of Jesus was transformed. Now check this out. Jesus has always been the Shekinah glory of God. He's always been the light of God. When he came to this planet, he clothed himself with a human body, and it veiled who he really was. At the Mount of Transfiguration, what he did is he took off the clothes of his human body. He rolled his flesh back, as it were, to reveal who he really was, and that's why Matthew 17 and verse 2 says, that he was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was as white as the light because that's who he is you know what they saw on that day y'all they saw god revealed in all of his holiness that's why in 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 16, it says that the Lord Jesus Christ dwells in the light, listen now, which no man can approach unto. That's his character. That's his nature. Psalm 145 and verse 17 says, The Lord is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. And you, you know what? that's saying it's saying the same exact thing that verse 5 says here in the book of first john in him is no darkness at all and, and do you understand that because god is light and in him there is no darkness at all that's why romans 1 18 says that the wrath of god is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men do you understand? Because God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. That's why Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the, the glory of God. And that's why Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. You see, do you understand, folks, that because God's nature is light or holiness, do you understand that that's... What, why, if God would have said to Adam, uh, you, you know, Adam, this is really a bummer, man, the way this thing is whole, this whole thing shaking down. I mean, I, I know you blew it and all, but you know what? I, it, it's really not that, that big a deal. Why don't we just do this? Let's just forget that the whole thing ever happened. Do you understand? That's an impossibility. Now, most Christians don't understand that. Listen, that's an impossibility. Because do you know what would mean, that would mean if God did that? 
it would mean that God's nature would be contradicted. For God to say one thing, and let's, let's just forget say one thing, let's, for God to be one thing and then turn around and do something else would be to contradict His nature. And if He ever contradicted His nature, do you know what that would mean? Do you? It would mean that He would cease to be God. So, so now understand something. God is light. And God doesn't owe us not one stinking little thing. He doesn't owe us anything. He doesn't have to seek us. He certainly doesn't have to save us. Do you understand? God would be perfectly just, in, as we've talked about, in just flicking us off of the globe and right into the pit of hell. He would be just in doing that. And understand something now. If God was only light... If he was only holiness, that's exactly what would have happened to every single one of us. He would have flicked us off the globe and right into hell, and he would have still been holy. And he still would have been just. But, hallelujah, John tells us that there's another key aspect of God's nature that really changes everything for us, and that is that God is not only light, but God is love. And I know that you know this. Don't, don't, don't just kick into, yeah, yeah, he's love. Oh, check it out. Do you understand the significance in light of what we just talked about, about his light? For John 3.16 to come along and say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Do you understand how monumental that is? 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 9 comes along and tells us that God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. You know why that is, y'all? It's because God is love. We're told in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4 that God, our Savior, will have all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. Now listen, do all men come to that knowledge? Are there some who actually do, even though God's not willing, are there some that actually do perish? Sure they do. But understand something. It's not because of God's nature. It's because of man's nature. God's nature is love. And, and I want you to see this in chapter 4 of 1 John. You should still be there. 1 John chapter 4 and verse 16. It says, And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. Okay, now look at it again. Now I want you to think with me. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. And you know what, y'all? If the verse ended there, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Because what it does is it tells us that God loves us. But John goes on, not only to tell us that God loves, but that God, what? Is love. And oh my goodness, this is not just a matter of, of words here. Listen to the difference. Do you understand the difference there? God doesn't just love. He is love. It's His essence. 
Again, it's who he is. It's his nature. Now, now, listen, if God just, as the first part of the verse, if God just loved us, do you understand that there might come a time when God wouldn't love us? Right? But not if he is love. Do you see? That rules out the possibility that though he loves us now, he might not do it tomorrow. No. His very nature demands that because of who he is. It's the essence of his very being. So now check this out. From a human perspective, you know what? It sounds like a very contradictory statement to say that God is light and yet God is love, or to say that God hates sin, but God loves sinners. But you see, they aren't contradictory statements. They're actually complementary statements because, listen, God's holiness meshes together perfectly with his love. And let me show you that right here in chapter 4, 1 John. Look back up to the very end of verse 8. There you see the principle again. God is love. Verse 9. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that we might live through him. That's that dead spirit we were talking about earlier. He, he died so that we might have spiritual life. Verse 10. Herein is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And of course the word propitiation means satisfaction. Or the, the satisfactory substitute. Now listen real carefully. The way this thing shakes down is this. God's holiness demanded that the price of sin be paid. Okay, now that's what we were talking about just a second ago. God couldn't have said, you know, Adam, you know, I love you anyway. It's okay. I forgive you. It's over and done. No. Because of who God is, his love could not be manifested without dealing with the sin. Do you understand that? If you, if you have love without light, then there's no justice. And if you remove justice from who God is, he ceases to be holy. And as we said, if he ceases to be holy, then he ceases to be God. And so here it comes. In God's love, this is what 1 John 4, 8 through 10 is saying. Here it is. In God's love, he offered his holy, righteous, sinless son and his substitutionary sacrifice satisfied the justice of the Father in all of his holiness. So you see, God is both. He is, he is light, John says, and he is love. And again, those aren't contradictory statements because God's holiness is. In the final analysis, it is perfect love. Now, I, I, man, you know what? I don't know what that does for you, but that, what that does is it takes all of this and it just puts it down at the level to where, you know what, I think a first grader can understand God is light, God is love. You fill in those and it'll take you the rest of your life 
to actually fill in all of that stuff. But I'm telling you, it doesn't get any better than that. And you know one of the reasons that I, I believe that the God of the Bible is the one true God? Because I'm just telling you, there isn't a man who has ever lived that has had the wisdom to be able to invent a God that would possess attributes that would appear humanly to be so contradictory and yet be able in simplicity to be able to bring them together in the two little simple phrases, God is light and God is love. Do you understand? A man could not concoct all of what we just talked about and find a way to make it all fit together. You know why it all fits together? Because we're talking about the one true God of the universe who is holy and who is love. Now, now listen, the, the reason that I went into all of that this morning is that if you don't have that background, you're never really going to comprehend what we see in Revelation chapter 15. And let's, let's make our way back to there, Revelation 15. Because the next thing that John has revealed to him is God's great and marvelous what, wrath. Now, let's just kind of set a little bit of the context. Ever since we hit chapter 6, what God's been doing is he's been taking John on a journey through the tribulation. In fact, he's allowed him to see it four times now. The first time was through the opening of seven seals. The second time was through the sounding of seven trumpets. The third time was the revealing of seven personages. And now as we come to chapter 15, what God does is he prepares John to see the tribulation for the fourth and final time. First, opening of seven trumpets. Second, sounding of seven, seven trumpets. Thirdly, revealing of seven personalities, if you will. And now this fourth and final time through the pouring of seven vials or seven bowls or cups, whatever. Okay, now, listen, the actual pouring of those vials isn't going to take place until we get to chapter 16. But in chapter 15, what God does is he prepares John and he prepares us for what he's about to show us. And what he's about to show us is his great and marvelous wrath. And we started our outline last week. You can see it there with Roman numeral number one, the unveiling of the great and marvelous sign in heaven. The unveiling of the great and marvelous sign in heaven. John says in verse 1, And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous. And what he does here is he allows us through what he saw and through the record of it, as, as he recorded it for us here in, in Revelation 15, he allows us, letter A, to look at the scene. He describes for us what it was that he actually saw so that we can look at what he saw. So we can look at the scene. The first thing that he sees, as you'll notice in verse 1, is he sees the seven angels. These seven angels are significant because they are holding something. They hold the seven plagues. You say, well, what are those? Well, it, it tells you in verse 1 that in them is filled up the wrath of God. And, and you know what? There's, there's certain truths in the Bible I know that rock different people in different ways. I don't know that there is any that has rocked me any more than what we were talking about last week. 
the fact that God, who is a God of love and grace and mercy and long-suffering and kindness and compassion and forgiveness and grace and go on and on and on with all of that, and he just for the last 6,000 years has continuously manifested that love and grace and compassion and all the other. That's what he's done all of these years. But the thing that most people miss is that while God is manifesting that grace and love, all the while, all the while, for the last 6,000 years, in heaven, God's wrath has been filling up. I mean, it, it's kind of like the, the water on the dam. You just, if you could see it from God's vantage point in heaven, you'd see that for the last 6,000 years and belong, that and, and, and longer, that wrath has been filling up. And we're going to see that what's going to happen as we move our way through into chapter 16 is this wrath that is going to be, or has been filling up. In the very near future, what's going to happen is God's going to take that wrath and he's going to pour it into these seven vials that these seven angels are going to be holding and then in the last part of the tribulation period, God's wrath is going to be poured out on this planet through the pouring of those seven vials that are containing the seven last plagues, which is the wrath of Almighty God. And then after seeing the seven angels and the seven plagues, we just began to talk about the sevenfold description of the victors. And John says in verse 2, And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire, and them that had gotten the victory over the beast. And, and let me just remind you that these victors are a very strange lot. Because the victory that they got over the Antichrist was when he lopped their heads off. That's how they got the victory. But, and, and we don't have time to... to to press that button again. What we saw last week is they were indeed victors. But now let's begin to work our way through this sevenfold description of these, these victors. The first thing that he shows us is that they are standing on the sea of glass. They are standing on the sea of glass. John says in, in verse 2, and I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mingled with fire. And then that had gotten the victory over the beast and over his image and over his mark and over the number of his name. And, and notice their position now. Look at it. Stand where? On the sea of glass. They are standing on the sea of glass. Now, this isn't the first time that we've seen this, this sea of glass. We saw it back in Revelation chapter 4. And turn back there, if you would. Remember in John or Revelation chapter 4, John was caught up into heaven. This is at the rapture, and he begins to describe what he sees in the very near future when we, most of the people in this room, Lord willing, will be raptured off of the face of this planet and brought before the throne room of God. And what he describes for us is at that time, in chapter 4, verse 6, he says, And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. Okay, now, now watch this. John says, I, I saw this, I saw this, this sea. 
And it was before God's throne. In other words, God's throne was sitting on that thing. And this sea was unlike any sea that I had ever seen because it wasn't liquid. He says it was solid. It was a sea of, of glass like unto crystal. You know how we'd say that today? It was, it was crystallized or it was, it was frozen. Now, we've talked in the past about this, this frozen sea many eons ago when we were in chapter 4. But let, let me show you something in Psalm 148. And as you're turning there, let me remind you of something very, very important, and that is that this sea that John saw in chapter 4, and as we're seeing in chapter 15 and verse 2, understand something now, and listen as you're turning. It's really nothing more than the platform from which God displays His glory. Okay, now once you get to Psalm 148, look at your study sheet, because that's on there. I, I, I want to make sure you got this. This sea... The sea of glass is really nothing more than the platform from which God displays His glory. It's made of water because water reflects. You see, artists love to, to paint into the landscape this smooth water because what it does is it reflects the focal point of the picture. And what it does is it actually accentuates it. it it magnifies it and do you understand that's what the sea of glass does it reflects the focal point of heaven and not only the focal point of heaven but the focal point of the entire universe what it does is it reflects the glory of god okay now in psalm 148 what he does is he describes for us the fact that there are three heavens found in the bible and we can see these all over the place again we've talked about those before that first heaven corresponds to what we would call the atmosphere, okay? It's located from the ground to the clouds. It's where the, the birds fly and the airplanes go, okay? The second heaven is what we refer to today as outer space. And this is located where the, the sun, the moon, and the stars are, okay? The third heaven is the abode of God, the abode of God, it's, it's where God lives. Okay, now listen, this third heaven is what John was seeing in Revelation chapter 4. It's what he's talking about in Revelation 15 and verse 2. And it's located beyond all of the constellations and galaxies and, and star clusters. It's located specifically, do you remember? In which direction, y'all? It's located in the... Good job, I'm impressed. Okay, it's located... In the north. And again, Psalm 148 is a psalm that is talking about praising God from all three of the heavens. That's why verse 1 says, Praise ye the Lord. Praise ye the Lord from the heavens. Plural. Okay? And here comes the third heaven. Praise Him in the heights. Praise ye Him, all His angels. Praise ye Him, all His hosts. You see, those are the other inhabitants of the third heaven. And then in verse 3, here comes the second heaven. Praise ye him, sun and moon. Praise him, all ye stars of light. Verse 4, praise him, ye heavens of heavens. And here's what I want you to see now. And ye waters that be above the heavens. Okay, now the heavens he's describing right here is the, the one, the, the second heaven. Okay, where the sun, moon, and the stars is. And he's talking about waters now. Listen that be above 
that second heaven. Someone says, well, you know, that's just a figure of speech. I mean, you don't want to create, you know, a doctrine out of that one verse. I agree. So let's go to the book just prior to this one, the book of Job, chapter 9. Job chapter 9. Let's pick up in verse, verse 5, where Job is, is talking about God removing mountains and, and overturning them. Verse 6, he says, which, which shaketh the earth out of her place, and the pillars thereof tremble, which commandeth the sun, and it riseth not, and sealeth up the stars, which alone spreadeth out the heavens, and notice now the, the context is the heavens, and treadeth upon the waves of the sea. Okay, now that's the sea that is in the heavens, and verse 9 confirms it because those names you see there are all constellations in the heavens. You say, well, what are these waters that Psalm 148 and verse 4, what are those that be above the heavens? And Job 9, 8 says that God treads upon. Well, I'm going to take you to a few other references, but let me take you back, first of all, to the beginning, and let's just set this thing as quickly as we possibly can. Of course, verse 1 of the book of Genesis says, In the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. And verse 2 says, And the earth was without form and void. We don't have time to get into this this morning, but I'll just tell you that according to Isaiah chapter 45 and verse 18, it says that when that it wasn't this way that it's described here when God created it. But now watch this now. Look on in verse 2. And darkness was upon the face of the deep, and I'd just like to remind you that this is before the Atlantic and the Pacific were created, and already God identifies the deep. Okay, go on in, in verse 2. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and, and he picks up the discussion of these waters in verse 6. Look at verse 6. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst, or in between, the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters you got that right okay what he's talking about is waters above and waters below and a firmament or an expanse in between verse 7 and God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament, and it was so, and God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. And I want you to notice that after that day was done, on the next day, look at it, God made the oceans to appear. Look at verse 9, and God said, Let the waters under the heaven be gathered together into one place, and let the dry land appear. And it was so. Okay, so those are the waters that are under the firmament that we've come to call the Atlantic, the Pacific, the Indian, and, you know, so forth. But the fact is, now, there is still those waters that were above the firmament. Okay, now, now turn over to Job chapter 26. You guys still with it? Okay, cool. Job 26. And look at verse 7. <clears throat> he stretcheth out the 
north over the empty place and hangeth the earth upon nothing. He bindeth up the waters in his thick clouds and the cloud is not rent under them. He holdeth back the face of his throne and spreadeth his cloud upon it. He hath compassed the waters with bounds until the day and night come to an end. And what God lets us know here is that this, this vast amount of water that is above us, way out there above the, the constellations and the galaxies and the, the, the star clusters and all of that stuff, he says that God has bound, he's bound that water into clouds. And God said in verse 9 that they hold back the face of his throne. In other words, man isn't going to invent a telescope that's going to see way out there into the third heaven sometime where God makes his abode because there is this incredible amount of water that God has bound into clouds that won't allow you to see through it. Proverbs 30 and verse 4 says that God bound the waters in a garment. It's like God just took those waters and he took, it's like a, a, a big garment. It's like a, a, a sheet that he uses so that those heavenly waters hide, and he says here, the face of his throne. And look at something else about these waters in chapter 38, Job 38. And look at verse 30. The waters, Job 38, verse 30, the waters are hid as with a stone, and watch this now. And the face of the deep is frozen. And, and you know what Job's describing for us here? The same thing we just saw in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6. The same thing we just saw in Revelation chapter 15 and verse 2. What he's describing is a sea of glass like unto crystal. Frozen upon which the throne of God is set. And I'm telling you, you want to talk about the consistency of the Bible, y'all? Go, go back to Exodus chapter 24 for a minute. Unbelievable, man. This book could not have been written by a man, let me tell you. <clears throat> Job and John aren't the only ones to talk about this frozen sea of glass that's way out there somewhere. Now, in Exodus 24, what God, the, the context here is God tells... Moses, that he wants he and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders to come to Sinai to worship him. And they come up in verse 9 of Exodus 24. And, and watch verse 10 now. And they saw the God of Israel. Okay, now obviously God anoints their eyes and they're able to see with spiritual vision right into the throne room of God now. Check this out. Watch how Moses describes it. And there was under his feet, as it were, a paved work. Why, why are some of y'all not looking in your Bible? Man, this is, this is the Word of God we're talking about here. Don't, don't trust me, okay? Look at it. There was under his feet, as it were, a paved work of a sapphire stone, and as it were, the body of heaven in his clearness. Moses says, you know what, man, I, I don't have the words to describe what I saw, but the best I can do is, is I can tell you that under his feet was this, this hard, perfectly clear surface that was, you know, it was kind of like a, 
It was kind of like a sapphire stone, you know, kind of had a bluish cast to it. You know, it was kind of like the last part of the verse there. It's kind of like the sky on a perfectly clear day. Now, different terminology, but do you understand he's describing the very same thing that John was trying to describe back there in Revelation chapter 4 and verse 6? And you know what? It's exactly the way that Job described it, just Job described it with a little bit of different terminology because he was a different personality. And, and go over to uh, the book of Ezekiel. Let me show you another one. In Ezekiel chapter 1, another man begins to describe for us the throne room of God. And Ezekiel says in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 22, Ezekiel 1, 22. And the likeness of the firmament upon the heads of the living creatures. Okay, that's what John calls the four beasts in the book of Revelation. Okay. Now watch this. Was as the color of the terrible crystal stretched forth over their heads. And drop down to verse 26. And above the firmament that was over their heads was the likeness of a throne as the appearance of a... Well, let's see. What words can I use to describe it, Ezekiel says? You know, it was like a... It was like a, a sapphire stone. And again, here it is. This firmament above their heads is like a sapphire stone. And I like the way he puts it back in verse 22. He said it was like a, a terrible crystal you know what we would say how we'd say that today it was like this incredibly awesome ice cube that's what he's talking about oh, a terrible crystal in fact the, the the word that is translated crystal right here it's the only time that the word is translated crystal in the entire Old Testament the other times check this out it's, it's translated frost or ice so check it out Job, Moses, Ezekiel all see the same thing as John and why don't you go back to Revelation 4 again Revelation 4 listen now okay it's all coming together listen now they all see a sea now listen that sea reflects the brightness and the glory of God. And every time that you see it in the Bible, it's crystal clear. I, again, it's, a, it's like this giant ice cube that is so smooth, it's like glass, it's so bright, it's like a, it's like a mirror, it's, it's like a sapphire stone. You know why it's like that? That's because His glory... The glory of God is always manifest in absolute purity, in absolute holiness. And do you understand that sea? What it does is it reflects the character and the nature of God. That sea reflects His holiness. And I want you to notice again here in verse 6 that when John sees this sea of glass here in the book of Revelation for the first time, Nobody's on it. 
Now when he sees it in chapter 15 in verse 2, somebody is on it. It's where the tribulation saints are standing. When he sees the sea of glass here in chapter 4 and verse 6, he says that it was clear as crystal. You know what? He saw it just like everybody else in the Bible who ever saw it saw it, and that's the way that he described it. But, But now check this out. When he sees it in chapter 15, now turn over there. When he sees it here in chapter 15, when the tribulation saints are standing on it, John says that it was still as clear as crystal. It was like glass. When they check it out, he says it was different than the way that he saw it in chapter 4. It's different than it was when Job saw it. It's different than it was when Moses saw it. It's different than it was when Ezekiel saw it. Because this time, it was a sea of glass, but it was, what? It was mingled with fire. You say, well, what's up with that? I mean, why after all these hundreds and hundreds and even thousands and thousands of years, why after all of this time, after all of these guys have described it, after all of these years, why now is it mingled with fire? Do you already know? Listen, all of these thousands and thousands of years, God in His holiness has revealed Himself as a God of love and mercy and grace and compassion, all the while warning that His wrath was filling up. But now, now get this. It's not until the second half of the tribulation period, and that's what the context of Revelation chapter 15 is. It's not until then that His wrath has actually been filled up. And until then, God's wrath isn't actually revealed. But once it is, that that sea of glass which He sits upon enthroned in all of His glory, oh man, it is still as just as crystal clear as it can possibly be, but don't make any mistake about it. At that point, it is also mingled with fire because the fire is the reflection of his, of his wrath, of his judgment. And do you know, listen, do you know from where it is that God's wrath and judgment proceed? This is why I went into all of that at the beginning. His wrath and His judgment proceed from His holiness. And that's what most people can't seem to understand. I'm talking about most Christian people. You know why we're taking such a long time on the wrath of God here as we're moving into chapter 15? Because Laodicean Christians don't understand a God of wrath. Listen, something else. They don't like him either. Listen. They view it as almost as if, you know, God's wrath and his anger and his judgment, it's almost like it comes from God's dark side. No, remember, 1 John 1, 5. In him is no darkness at all. Oh, please listen. His wrath, his hatred, his anger 
proceed not out of his darkness but out of his out of his light just two weeks ago somebody gave me a, 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 the US News and World, Re, uh, World Report uh, the date on the thing was January 31st 2000 the, the cover story was hell a new vision of the netherworld and when you get to the article the article is actually entitled hell hath no fury and I want you to listen to what the writer the writer of the article says many modern Christians are simply ashamed of hell explains professor Douglas Gruthuis of Denver Seminary even some evangelicals who generally take a more literal literal approach to biblical teaching he says view hell listen now as a blemish to be covered up by the cosmetic of divine love okay let me say that again God's wrath if you will is a blemish to be covered up by the cosmetic of divine love no folks listen please understand you don't have to cover up his wrath if God did not have wrath and anger he wouldn't be God God is absolute perfect love because he is love but the same God is equally perfect hate because he is light and the fact is you'll never understand or appreciate the fact that God loves sinners until you understand just how incredibly much that holy righteous God hates sin and so John sees this the sea of glass and for the first time in any part of the whole revelation of God it's mingled with fire and you know what's so wonderful about it yo is that is precisely where the tribulation saints are standing they are standing at this point as the victors standing in the presence of God and you know what it really doesn't mean a whole lot when we read they are standing on the sea of glass mingled with fire that really doesn't mean too much until you understand that that sea of glass mingled with fire when you understand what that actually is oh my goodness it's incredibly significant because that sea of glass mingled with fire is the full revelation of God's absolute holiness in all of his righteousness and in all of his fury and check this out y'all they are standing on it you know what that means they are standing on the holiness of God do you understand this morning that the only people who will ever 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 stand in the presence of Almighty God are those who stand upon his what? holiness do you understand that there ain't a single one of us in this entire bunch or an entire bunch that has ever graced this planet that could ever stand in the presence of a holy God the only way that you can do it is stand on his holiness 
And that's why 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21 says that God made him, that is Christ, to be sin for us, that we might be, what? Made, made what? The righteousness of God in him. Listen, you know what? You know what just got me so stoked this week? Is I'm seeing these people actually standing on the holiness of God. And that's real cool. But the thing that got me so stoked is that's me and you too. We stand this morning as born again sons and daughters of God, not by works of righteousness which we have done, not because any one of us deserved anything other than the flames of an eternal fire in the pit of hell. We stand in the presence of God on a daily basis, not based on our holiness, but based on His holiness. If you're here this morning, and you've never received Jesus Christ as your Savior, let me just tell you something. You couldn't live a righteous enough life if you stopped sinning today. It never would bring you into the presence of a holy God without being absolutely zapped. Because the book of Hebrews says that our God is a consuming fire. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 7 says that when He's revealed from heaven with His mighty angels, that He's coming in flaming fire, taking vengeance on all them that know not God and obey not the gospel of God. And listen, unless you have received the gospel of God, you do not stand today on the holiness of God. And if you don't stand on the holiness of God, you do not stand in His presence. And yet the holy God of the universe, the God who is light, is a God of love. And it says, you can't do it. You can't do it. But I'll do it for you. If you'll just come to the place to where you'll stop trying to do all the stuff and stop trying to be religious and stop trying to do good and stop trying to do religious things and just come to the place to where in humility you come before the God of light in whom is no darkness at all and say, oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And God in his love says, you know what? I've just been waiting on you. Because my son was the propitiation. He was the satisfactory substitute that satisfied my justice and my holiness. And what I'll do, because you called upon my name, I'll place you in my son and you'll stand, not on your own holiness, but on his. And you know what? That's what life's all about, y'all. Make it hard or make it simple. And it's so simple that some of you today that walked into this room headed on your way to hell, it's so simple that within the next few minutes before you leave this building, the whole life could be turned around and you could be heading to an eternity with the God who is light and the God who is love. Our pastors are going to be up on either side of the front of this room as we're dismissed. We're inviting you to respond to what God has been commanding you to do. And according to Acts chapter 17, what God's been commanding all through this service today is that you repent, that you turn from your own way to His way. 
We invite you. God commands you. And as we're dismissed in just a few minutes, if you want to receive what God is offering you today, then come and talk to one of these men. They'll have someone who will take a Bible and take you to a private room and talk to you specifically about how you can come into the family of God today and you can become a son or daughter of God. Let's stand together. And, oh, Lord, I do pray that you would work in the hearts of, of people in this room today. And I pray that you would work the miracle of salvation in, in some of the folks that are, that are here today. Lord, thank you for the day that you opened our eyes to who you are and, and who we were without you. Thank you for what you've done in us. But, oh, God, today, would you do that same thing? in the lives of people that came into this room in the same condition that all of us came into it at one point. And oh God, would you please change their eternal destiny, and not only their eternal destiny, but would you change their life right now as they find out what it is to have a personal love relationship with the holy God of the universe. And so Lord, we ask that you would Perform that miracle in our midst today. In Jesus' name, amen.